Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're going to talk about Marxism as a virus. I know that may have a negative connotation, and I do think Marxism needs some negative connotation, but the, the virus analogy works really well for Marxism because if we see it as a virus, we see it as this thing that spreads outside of us, yes, but also it spreads well in because we are susceptible to it. We are not immune to it. We have a weakened immune response to Marxism. So yeah, maybe we can say the problem is with Marxism, but I mean, look, we're, this is not a politics channel. This is psychology. What does it mean about us that Marxism, this new ideology that's very young as far as ideologies go, 150 years, a little bit more than that, old, uh, why does it spread so well? There's something to Marxism that makes it spread so well, but ultimately, you know, there, there's something in us. So the goal isn't to destroy Marxism. That's really never the goal of, of any virus. It is to understand it, to put it in a lab, under a microscope, study it, so we can inoculate ourselves against it. Because if we're ever going to transcend Marxism, we, we can't just ignore it. We can't just destroy it. We can't say, oh, look, those anti-fascists out there, they're the Marxists. Oh, that, that, that makes you feel better, <laughs> but it doesn't do anything. And plus, it, when, when you do that, you're actually doing the thing that perpetuates the very thing itself that you wanted to destroy. It, it perpetuates Marxism. The goal is not to eradicate it so much as it is to integrate it. We go, oh, this is fascinating. Right, let's study this. Uh, defend ourselves properly against this. And of course, you know, this is psychology. Like, I, so this is going to be about where, how, how can you do it in your own individual psyche, your own individual soul, for lack of a better word. It, emphasis, though, on destroy the individual. Because if Marxism is, if we see it as a virus, if it does anything, what it does very well is it destroys individualism. It, it completely eviscerates it. I mean, there have been other ideologies that have done this pretty well, but phew, Marxism is really good at it. And there's specific things in Marxism that make it good at it. Let's get to it. Join animus.com slash schedule if you want to reach out and talk with me. I would like to hear from you. The outline for this presentation context, just some background information, then we'll get to the specific philosophical background of Marx, what influenced Marx. I mean, and there's a bunch of things. I'm not going to cover it all here, but the main things from my perspective, why Marxism works so well, you know, why it spreads so easily or why it's been able to spread throughout our culture in the past 150 years, how to immunize yourself which we can really only understand how to immunize yourself when we understand what Marxism is. And then some concluding thoughts, perhaps, uh, context. You got to know thy enemy, but where does the enemy exist? Is the enemy Marxism? Not really. Because yeah, there's this virus you could say going on out there. And I, I really, well, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll just call it a virus for now. This virus going on out there. And if it's spreading, oh, is the virus wrong? Yeah, that's really easy to blame the virus. It, you know, that I know that makes you feel good to call somebody else a Marxist and, and think, you know, you've, you've just like Twitter owned them. But it doesn't matter until you can look at how your own issues contribute to the spread of Marxism. Or, or let's look at the issues present in Western culture at the time when Marxism spread. 
and see how you have those same issues. See how you contribute to its spread, which I'm sure you do to some degree. Yeah, we can point to the enemy out there, but of course this is about psychology, not about, um, you know, analyzing current, you know, we only analyze current trends, right? When the iron curtain goes down out there, outside of us, it, it goes down in, in each soul, in each individual soul in Western civilization. So yeah, we can point out there, but the issue always comes back to us. I also think it helps to really understand Marxism because w- when you understand it, your uh, predilection, your proclivity, forget the right connotation of, of what word there, for conspiracy theories diminishes. And I'm not saying conspiracies don't exist. Of course they do. Uh, but I think we can understand things in their proper context when we understand Marxism and what it does to people. And I think you don't really need conspiracies anymore. Like, uh, you know, like if it's like you were a five-year-old, um, you know, came up in the Simpsons episode, grandpa versus sexual inadequacy, but I'm I'm not going to use Millhouse's, uh, conspiracy about reverse vampires, or maybe I will. Uh, you know, Grandpa invents the, this tonic. Uh, Grandpa and Homer sell this tonic, and it makes the adults more amorous. Let's just say, and be, because Millhouse doesn't understand sex or what it does chemically to the body, right? He's not mature enough to get it. He needs to come up with this conspiracy of reverse vampires. But if he just understood what sex is, and he's too young to understand it, so he's he's not going to get it then it just makes more sense. Oh no, the the adults, I mean, yeah, they're they're going away, but they're they're just going after this chemical that uh arises when they're in, in a certain kind of physical contact with with each other, with pre- preferably with some kind of consenting adult. And that's what I see when I see a lot of conspiracy theories like Illuminati or any kind of like Jewish cabal conspiracy theory, I see an unformed mind trying to grasp at an idea they simply don't understand. Maybe to some degree they understand it, but uh, they don't, you know, it's like alcoholism. Like if, when you really don't understand alcoholism, and I don't know if I really do because I'm not an alcoholic. Um, I think I do. I don't know. I, I really think I, well, whatever. But if you just see it as, oh, this is a justification to go after certain chemicals, man, it really takes a lot of the moralization off of it. I'm not saying you have to accept it. It's not for that purpose, but just to understand it so you can address it. And that's what I want to do with Marxism. So what is Marxism? It is, well, I think here's, here's a few thoughts. One is this quotation from Marx. It's not consciousness of men that determines their existence, but it is their existence that determines their consciousness. Ooh, that's good. I'm going to read it again. It's not consciousness of men that determines their existence, but it is their existence that determines their consciousness, which again, isn't, wasn't like a new idea necessarily in Western civilization when Marx wrote this. Uh, but you know, he, uh, he he really pinpointed something that was already going on. It's not like people didn't realize or didn't have the thought that, oh, this aristocrat, he owns all the land and he lives off of us. He, he gets rich off of our labor. 
people thought that, of course, and there was revolutions and they beheaded these guys. Of course that happened. But when Marx came around, he, he made these ideas definite. And I think that's why it's so powerful is because these feelings, these emotions of Marxism were kind of floating around and almost landed in the minds of, of the, the psyche of, of Western civilization, man. But Marx really nailed it down. It is metaphysical materialism plus epistemological empiricism applied very well. It is the philosophy of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment are part of that philosophy. I think I talk about this later, but I'll just mention it now. The, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, they despiritualized nature and Marx thought, hmm, that worked really well. And it did. We got the scientific method and, and he knew you know, we, we got the industrial revolution because of that, right? Knowledge is power. Knowledge is no longer this thing that, that you use when you're, you're, you know, contemplating your navel and, and arguing about, you know, famously how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. It is this thing that really matters. And Marx knew we got this because we despiritualized nature. You know, we, we deconstructed nature. So let's do the same thing to man. It is Christian redemption in economics in the guise of economics. I know Marx was Jewish. Uh, people say that's why he's a Marxist. That's a Jewish philosophy. That really has nothing to do with it. I may address that a bit later, but that obviously is not what's going on. Um, I do think that certain people are, you know, if we take the virus analogy, certain people are more susceptible to Marxism, of course. But this is ultimately Christian redemption. Uh, Marx was raised as a Protestant Christian. And so it's Christian redemption in the guise of economics is one way of thinking about this. There was this garden of Eden, this state of nature, and we have fallen from that and we need to get back to it. And how we do that is what well, we first notice that there's inevitable class conflict. You have a class consciousness that's created by the fact that you're in this class. The lower class must overtake the higher class. And this creates not only, um, a new society, but when it creates a new society, of course, it creates a new consciousness, a new man. So what are some examples of Marxism? Because I think it's one of these things. You know, nobody reads Das Kapital because you can't. It's impossible. It's incredibly convoluted. We'll get to why that is later. But people still, you know, parrot uh, Marxism. And, you know, part of my, you know, my personal issue with Marxism, you can argue, is this is why I was kicked out of graduate school is because of Marxism, because of this philosophy. It was applied very well in the graduate school I attended and all the graduate schools I attended. Um, and because it was applied where it, there's no way I could have existed in the context of the graduate program. Uh, you know, but I was first tipped off to the fact that I was dealing with Marxism is when somebody said, um, Something about, oh, you can't say that because you're a white male. Or you can't talk about this issue the same way I can because of your consciousness, because of the consciousness created by the color of your skin. Um, but I think it is interesting, and the reason why I'm talking about Marxism is because you can be a Marxist and go around and parrot his ideas. You have no idea. You may not even know who Marx is. But it's uh, paraded around today as woke. 
uh, as woke ideology, which is Marxism applied to race and gender. And you had the have and have nots. You had the bourgeois and the proletariat. Now you have the whites and the blacks, the men and the women. Now even the cis and the trans. Whenever somebody says, I believe in free speech, but Marx was very much in favor of free speech until I think that that's a very Marxist wording of it. Like, yeah, I believe in this fundamental concept, <laughs> except when the free speech uh, denigrates in any way the proletariat or the collective. What we see is what the ultimate collective will be after the revolution. And this is why you would have campus protesters, you know, no qualms about, uh, you know, just if if a speaker comes to their campus and they don't like their ideas, well, you do not have the right to voice those ideas because the collective comes first. Whenever somebody describes themselves as anti-something, racism, fascism, patriarchy, imperialism, these are all part of Marxism, by the way. But Marxism is inherently racist. Of course it is. Uh, it is. It ends up looking a lot like fascism. Um, it, it runs on imperialism. The, the only times when Marxism, when it was applied in a country and they weren't imperialistic about it is because they couldn't be. They're like, I, I have my hands full trying to enforce the t this tyranny here within my own borders. I mean, that's what uh, Stalin said. He's like, no, we, 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 we're not spreading this to the world. Let's just work on uh, Marxism. Let's just work on communism here within Russia. Um, and anti-Semitism, that's become... You know, people will say that criticizing Marxism is like an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Uh, I, I, yeah, people definitely use it that way. And of course, uh, anti-Semitism is, is wrong, obviously. But uh, saying something's anti-Semitic is a Marxist dog whistle, too. Anti-capitalism and anti anything anti-industrialization. This, uh, this myth of like the upper class and the lower class is very much being applied to environmentalism today which I'm not going to get into too much equity of course that's the new buzzword instead of equality and you know it's not just the left who does this right that's what i'm talking about this is i i think these ideas have just permeated so much of our society we don't even realize it anymore but when somebody says you are the sum of your five closest friendships what what else could that be besides it's not consciousness and that determines their existence, but it's their existence. It's their five closest friends that determines their consciousness. And people just parrot this all the time without even thinking about it. Or there's this meme, the hard times create strong men, yada, yada, yada. This is your existence determines your consciousness. Or there's this. This is more from the left, but they got you fighting a culture war to stop you fighting a class war. This meme's going around a lot. I mean, this seems like some radical thing. Like, yeah, yeah, we're all in this together. No, they just want you. They're just going back to a a purer form of Marxism. They're like that this this Marxism that's that's using race against you. Now that's not working. Let's use your uh, your economic class against you. That's gonna work. And so, I, yeah, I think it's good to see Marxism as a virus. It is, it is a mimetic virus that exploits a weakened psychic uh, immune system. So it's silly. I think it's silly to defeat Marxism or even to call out Marxism as some kind of enemy. 
it's like Islam's an enemy or Islamic extremism's an enemy or terrorism. Remember when he had a war on terrorism? It's like this war on this technique that people use to spread an ideology. It's, it's the silliest thing. It is a something to be integrated. It is something to be understood. We need, and I, yeah, I would even say we need Marxism. Like we need, uh, like we needed Christianity at some point. Christianity introduced an idea into Western civilization that I don't think would have been introduced otherwise. Now, that ideology of Christianity got away from itself when we brought it back with the Enlightenment and Renaissance. And, and now anybody to today who says that there's some kind of real Christian, no, they're, they're a real Christian in the context of our post-Enlightenment society. And we need to do the same with Marxism. Yeah, I think... Marxism is an expression of something in us that Marx uh, pinpointed very well. And that's, that's all he did. And I think that's why it spread. So the goal is to inoculate yourself, right? Let's not get rid of it. We need the venom from Marxism to make the antidote. And yeah, when, when this, this analogy carries well, I think some groups are going to be more susceptible to Marxism. Uh, and we're going to talk about what makes you more susceptible, but neuroticism. N neuroticism will definitely make you more susceptible to Marxism. And again, this is apolitical. This is not left-right, Dem versus Republican. That is a den end. And really to blame others for being Marxist would be Marxist itself, would be an iteration of Marxism. The left, are more, the left is more susceptible. That's true. But this doesn't make the less less the left less valuable. The left has a similar epistemology uh, propagated by Marxism. So you take um, people with this um, with this epistemology, and if they're more neurotic, they're going to be more susceptible. Just like people on the right who are more neurotic, they have the same epistemology of a fascist, let's say. Uh, makes them more likely to be fascist. But they're, they're not bad people just because they're more likely to be fascist because they have epistemological cues that fall in line with this kind of philosophy. It's the same thing with Marxism. And I would even say, yes, Marxism is necessary. Christianity was necessary to superimpose the individual over and above society. As smart as the Greeks were, and the, the Romans to a lesser extent, they, they didn't understand individualism. I mean, the idea that the individual exists over and above society. I don't know. I mean, you, you go back and, and you read, um, you know, even somebody like Aristotle and th there was some implied individuals in there. Like, you know, Aristotle, you know, it, that's the implication of Nicomachean ethics is it matters what you do. There's an implied individualism there, but not really explicated very well. And I, I really think that we needed Christianity to come in and say, no, the individual soul matters. It, it, in the face of the Roman Empire, it, the Roman Empire is nothing, is nothing metaphysically in, in the face of the individual soul. There was a supernatural connotation of that soul. Your soul only matters in another world. You know, it's not about 
who you are in this world. It only matters in another world. So there was some like existential uh, pessimism uh, with that. But um, I think that's a very important idea, a very important kernel of an, of an idea that we needed to integrate into Western civilization. And we did just through trial and error. Christianity hurt society for a while. And then you could say it's the Christian church, whatever. And we can argue all day about what Christianity was, um, you know, fundamentally, but whatever. Uh, but I think Marxism will do the same. You know, I think if we integrate Marxism, well, it will do the same as Christianity did for Western civilization. I think Marxism exposes this huge blind spot that we have. And we simply need to integrate it. That's why destroy Marxism is as silly as destroy Christianity. It's like to destroy Christianity would is tantamount to saying you are destroying an expression of human nature, and that's what Christianity is. Uh, now we can you know take it and modify it and you know change some words around to make it more applicable to life on this earth, which ultimately matters. Um, but I think Marxism, too, it's just an expression of something in us, and we need to integrate it. Yeah, so to say destroy Marxism, I mean, that is Marxist because right, because it's like destroy human nature. And that's what Marxists want to do, right? They want to eliminate any kind of difference between among men. They want to destroy human nature to make their their you know, to usher in this, this new age of, of consciousness. So what's the philosophical background of Marxism? Well, it's materialism first and foremost. And the consequence of materialism that matter is simply atoms in a void. Um, is that the mind is matter in motion. That is, there is no mind. Uh, you do not have free will. And you may have thoughts of your own, but they are of no effect. Thus, your race, your gender, your class, insert whatever victim status here creates your consciousness. And yeah, but the Mar and Marx was very clear about this. He said, wow, the Enlightenment and despiritualized man, look at this huge innovation we got. You know, Marx was very aware of the power of capitalism. He was pro capitalism because he saw what it did to create this mass amount of wealth and innovation um and he said wow if we when we despiritualize de nature this is what we do well what if we despiritualize man and that's the you know one of the premises of marxism uh is the um Yeah, I mean, if humans did not have free will and values were zero-sum, then Marx would be right. It's a totally coherent scientific theory. And yeah, so any thought you have, just go back over my notes here, is just a rationalization. And that's why when I was in that classroom and somebody said, oh, you can't say that because you're a white male, or that's just from your white male perspective. I thought, oh, yeah, this is what this is. This this is Marxism. Um that is polylogism. You you don't really have a consciousness of your own. Plus Christian Christian cosmology, which definitely influenced Marx. There was this golden age, a fall from grace, 
their other ideas. You know, it's not like Marx was the first socialist thinker. There are other socialist thinkers saying the same thing. Like uh, Fourier, uh, St. Simon, St. Simon. There is this previous state in, in society of what we project to be emotional fulfillment. This noble savage, the idea of a noble savage, you know, living among the stream, just uh, taking bananas off the, the, the tree, um, drinking all the water that he came from the stream, wants for nothing. And the goal of Marxism and this Christian cosmology is to overcome this separateness, to overcome this feeling of alienation, to overcome this feeling of emotional lack. That is ultimately because of your own neuroticism. You think it's society, it's really your, your psychological issues coming up. And you think that Marxism is going to save you from this, which is why if you're more geared towards a fact-based empiricism epistemology, the epistemology of the left, and you're neurotic, you are going to be much more likely to be a Marxist. Do with that information what you will, or apply that however you will. And of course, Kant is a huge influence on Marx. Kant did for epistemology what Marx did to politics. You know, Kant was not the first guy to say, oh yeah, there's a, a noumenal world out there, the a world as it is in itself, and then there is your interpretation of the noumenal world, the phenomenal world. That is what you see, but that in no way is reality. Kant was not the first guy to say that or even think that, that you can't really understand reality for what it is. I mean, he says, philosophy was bending itself backwards, you know, trying to rationalize like, oh, yeah, there's primary qualities or secondary qualities, you know, all this stuff. But Kant came around and gave very good reasonings for your mind cannot know reality. which is a piece that we needed in philosophy for Marxism to work. Marx took that and said, yeah, because of your class consciousness. That's why you can't know reality. But Marx also did the same thing to politics, what Kant did for epistemology, because again, he took this idea that was in the ether and he just pinpointed it and nailed it down. They were, of course, revolts and revolutions on you know all kinds of scales against the, the poor against the rich. Oh, look, they're taking money from us. Marx said, yeah, that is in fact true. And here's a whole philosophy that justifies it. That is, that is a very good philosophy. That, that is well executed, as well executed as, as we can. It's not that well executed in Das Kapital for reasons we'll get into. You know, I've already teased that. But, um... There's a whole coherent philosophy behind this. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> your envy about the upper class, that's not just your violent emotion that, that you express through like, you know, torches and pitchforks. No, that's that's there's intellectual backing to that. Just like what Kant did. Yeah, your mind cannot know reality. You're right, all these philosophers, but you just didn't go far enough. Same thing with Marx. Yeah, you're right. The rich stole your money. Effectively, that's what they did. And you have the right for a violent. Now, I don't think he ever advocated murder, but he did, you know, advocate a violent revolution. You know, what else are you, 
what else is going to happen when you advocate a violent revolution? Of course, you're going to start killing families. And obviously, the execution of the uh, the czars and the Alexander Nicholas, I forget, uh, and his daughter Anastasia and how she got away. There's a Disney movie about it. Uh, yeah, I mean that is, um, yeah. Where were you when you when you first learned that? Uh, you know, because you learn in college, at least I did, that like, oh, Marx wasn't, uh, he didn't advocate for a violent overthrow of, of, of capitalism or society. He just thought that these things were going natu- to happen naturally. Yeah, where were you when you realized that was a lie? That was a Marxist psyop to tell you that. No, Marx is very much in favor of a violent overthrow of society. Um, he thought that's what needed to happen. He's not an anarchist. No, he thinks there needs to be an administrative state. Just the, the, the state comes from the voice of the people, not the, the select few. But he was in favor of a communist state, an administrative state, a bureaucracy. So a lot of this comes from Kant and then Hegel. Again, I mean, it just shows that the anxiety that people have around Jewish people I mean, Marx's two biggest influences, I mean, these are all Christian, right? Christian cosmology, Kant. He's trying to justify his Christian worldview. That's why he develops this philosophy. And, of course, Hegel is very much a Christian. Um, Hegel was a huge influence on Marx. He died in 1831, uh, taught at the University of Berlin. Marx arrived at the University of Berlin in 1835, and everything that you say about Hegel's dialectical idealism became dialectical materialism. It's not a conflict of ideas, a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis. It is rather a conflict of classes. The bourgeois, the proletariat, and they are going to create a new consciousness from the conflict of these classes. But first, we need to be aware of our classes and how they cause our consciousness in the first place if we're ever going to come to this new version of man. So why does Marxism work so well? I think this is the most interesting part of this. Uh, There's several reasons, I think, and this is probably not all of them, but well, like I was kind of hinting at before, it plays into the milieu, the psychological, philosophical milieu very well. It piggybacks off of Christianity, Judaism, and the religious altruism of these religions. aggravates it. It gives voice to it. It explicates it very well. Where Christianity and Judaism, however, would say, yeah, all things will be equal. Your soul will be judged based on who you are, not what you have in another life. Mark says, no, F that. This is materialism. Like, we don't believe in another life. We don't believe in the supernatural you will judge your own soul for yourself by creating that revolution, right? That, that Christian uh, endpoint, not so much Judaism, but that Christian heaven, you, because that heaven does not exist in another world, you are going to create that here in this world, right? That quotation. I don't know who said it. Maybe it was me. I don't think so. I think I got it from somewhere. Yeah. Mark said that, that religion, that Christianity was the opium of the masses But I would say that Marxism is the crystal meth of the masses. It's like it takes those Christian ideas and say, no, don't wait. No, do it now. Start organizing now. Start a violent revolution now. 
because that's what happens when you mix religious altruism, religious collectivism, plus materialism, then uh, you get utopianism. Marx, Marxism gives voice to your envy or any of your psychological issues, any of your insecurities about not having enough money, about, oh, this, this rich guy out there, he took money from me. And it says, no, your envy is correct. Rather than explain away your envy, like Christianity does, like, don't worry about it. Uh, it says, no, your envy is correct. He stole your money. And it's very scientific, you know, it's, it's an excellent application of, you know, albeit wrong premises. But if you don't really check those premises and, and you just, uh, yeah, it's just, just very alluring for intellectual kind of people. I, I guess you could say I was a Marxist. I was least intro, I was least enticed by Marxist ideas when I was in high school. And so I can only tell you what I remember from that time when I was really thinking about this stuff. And it just seemed very alluring because it, it explained everything. Now the premises are wrong, but if you don't look at that, it's a completely scientific uh, theory. If you despiritualize man, Marxist is right. Marxism is right, but you can't. And uh, Mark saw that too late, although he never really admitted it. And, uh, you know, it just makes rationalizations really easy. So, like, the idea of the labor theory of value, it's wrong. But if you're wearing the orange colored glasses of man doesn't have a, a free will and wealth production is zero sum, if you're wearing those orange colored glasses, then, of course, labor theory of value is uh, is 100% correct. Now, Marxism is also seen as the only alternative. Um, I don't know what no vaccine means. What was I think when I made that note? But um, if, you, if you see the only alternative, I'm not really sure. Okay, so if you see the only alternative to Marxism as some kind of religion, as some kind of supernatural religion, actually Marx does a very good job of debunking that. Of a, of a religion based on a supernatural idea. And I think because of scientific advancement at the time, people were starting to realize this, that the religion of the past, however we were practicing it, is not going to work anymore. And Marx, you know, put that out, out as the only alternative. Well, if the only alternative is to... I mean, if, if the only way that you're, you have a soul is from God, well, obviously there is no God. So Marxism must be right. So just by process of elimination, you know, Marxism is the only alternative to, to, to this previously held philosophy that, that's so much of the foundation of our civilization. And it's scientific, like I said. Uh, it, it gives you the idea that if science is right, then Marxism is right. It is a fully coherent theory However, it is detached from reality, and why da and this is why Das Kapital is three volumes and not a pamphlet as it was supposed to be. 
Because what Marx tried to do in Das Kapital is explain the labor theory of value. The only value that you get from labor is the physical input into it. He was trying to explain all of history through this. And of course you can't do it. Because in order to do that, you you have to, like planning, like there's there's no value in planning and you have to explain how the owners and the non-owners, the bourgeois and the proletariat are at odds and you can't. So he tries to come up with this huge rationalization of these principles that he's held since he was a young man at the University of Berlin. And it's just, it's just a rationalization. You know, of course, the thing that he accuses everybody else of doing polylogism, that's rationalization. Of course, he's the one who's the, the biggest uh, committer of, of that rationalization. And it's just a travesty of a book. I mean, the fact that it's taken even a little bit seriously now shows how I think embedded we are in, in Marxism, uh, that, that it's even considered because it's, it's one volume. The other two volumes were published post, uh, posthumously, posthumously by, by Engels. Uh, and it's a travesty because it was supposed to take six weeks. He tried to explain all of history and labor theory of value and he couldn't do it. Do you ever consider that maybe the labor theory of value is wrong? But but see, it's not wrong. But by their premises, do you have the ability to look at your premises? No. Because you're a scientific thinker, you look at facts over theories. You look at facts over truth. So you, so you take these premises. So you really don't have the kind of mind that question these premises. And it creates a self-fulfilling worldview, Marxism does, because it definitely creates a bureaucracy in which we have less choice. Again, Marxism was neither anarchistic, nor was it peaceful. If you heard that, you were being lied to by Marxists. It creates a bureaucracy in which we inevitably have less choice. So it like, it seems like it's real. So it creates this administrative state and how administrative states works. It works as it creates more of an oligarchy. The exact thing that Marxism was fighting against. Uh, um, because that's, that's what happens, right? When, when you create pressure, when, when you create the ability to pressure economically um, from the, the government, from the administrative level, uh, what what essentially happens is you create uh, pressure points where if somebody can get in and influence those pressure points, they can make a lot of money. That's why we have, it's the military industrial complex. It's the medical industrial complex. There's a whole bunch of these complexes now because you have parts of the state running the economy. Oh, so now in order to make a lot of money, you don't need to, to create a business within that economy which maybe you can argue if you do all that, you can still exploit people, which doesn't mean take more from their labor than they would. Yeah, you take the, the, the value from their labor. That's what exploitation means, that they contribute more to the company than, than they receive back. So maybe you can argue you can still exploit labor, perhaps, but you know how you can do it really easily? is if there's control over the economy, you go in and influence the controllers. This is lobbying, and this creates complexes. 
And this does, in fact, create a society in which you have less choice. So the application of Marxism to society just validates the Marxism, validates the ideas even more. I mean, the analogy is it's like if an STD made you hornier, right? That's what Marxism is. Um, and Mar nothing completely eviscerates the individual like Marxism, which is why the, the greatest joke is that it has become... I mean, the dominant idea, not only in psychology, but in a lot, all of academia, but in psychology, I mean, it's in the name. Psychology is the study of the soul, the study of the soul, the individual soul. And the fact that it's run by Marxism now and completely overtaken by that ideology, which really happened, uh, you know, it's been happening for uh, ever since World War II but really over the past 20 or 30 years. And it, it just completely eviscerates the individual. And it's why you have therapy now that is not bad therapy. It is anti-therapy. It is therapy that shows you how society has made you this way. How society contributes to your neurosis because of your whatever under lower class status because of your skin color because of your gender because of your the trans nature of your gender you know whatever it happens to be this is why you have your problems and in fact part of the therapy is now no longer to look at your own issues but it is to change society to be part of some activist group that is seen as therapy when in truth that is anti-therapy that is a distraction and i'm not saying to not be a part of some activist group but let's not confuse that with whatever is causing your issue so it eviscerates the individual it eviscerates therapy this is why i cannot in good conscience be part of the apa because it uh, promulgates these ideas to the utmost the, the only times when the apa doesn't promulgate these ideas is when it uh is when it supports something like cognitive behavioral therapy. The, the only reason that the only reason that, that that's still promulgated, and I know I'm using that word a lot, is because uh, it's um it's it's so well funded, and it's been well funded for a long time. It's like it's still this like uh, vestigial part of 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 psych of of psych can't talk of psychology you know ever since the, the space race in a sense the other thing that marxism does really well is it is it's like this beautiful just like perfect rationalization of power lust before marxism if somebody wanted power there was you know you just had to be more honest about it. I want power because I want power. Uh, now with like, uh, um, in the Middle Ages with like Christian theocracy, it was, um, there's always some dissonance there as portrayed very well in um, Ivan Karamazov's The uh, the Grand Inquisitor, right? That short story within brothers Karamazov we don't have to go into that but you can look up you know what what that is I mean there's this clear contradiction there if you set up a Christian theocracy you can do it but with Marxism there's no contradiction 
It's like, yeah, your power lust is right. And, and this gives sociopathic people who are also good at organization, uh, like Mao or, you know, all these other guys, it gives them a good rationalization to really, you know, lay the hammer on people and really genocide people. Like you, like you want to genocide people and feel good about it. You got to be a Marxist. I mean, that must be, I mean, that must be, feel really good. <laughs> you know, I get to kill all these people. I get to set up these death camps, these forced labor camps, you know, you know, whether you're a German or, or, you know, a Chinese during the revolution, um, or excuse me, Russian. I mean, you know, at Germany, what happened in Germany? That was not Marxism. That was, we're trying to be as anti-Marxist as possible. And we end up just, you know, kind of doing the same thing. Um, it is different. And it, it's not, it's, it's socialism. It's not Marxism. They're different. I get it. That's not what this presentation is about, but, but it's just a great rationalization for powerless. It's like the, the alcoholic, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts, you know what they really want when they're, they're in the throes of their, uh, neurosis they would call it a disease i think that gives a poor negative connotation to it but just when they're in the throes of the neurosis they want somebody to come along and say you deserve to have a drink yeah all these other alcoholics who need to go to their meetings and need to work on themselves and look at you know as alcoholics say clean up their side of the street no you get to have this drink you can sit in the back of this dank bar on a Tuesday, you know, late morning, something sadder about having a drink at 11 a.m. than the 9 a.m. I don't know why. But you deserve to sit in the bar and have this drink. It, nobody else, no other alcoholic gets to, but you do. And Marxism does that for, for people who are, are get, get addicted to power. And that completely eviscerates 90% of conspiracy theories. Not all of them. <laughs> I'm going to do a presentation of conspiracy theories that are actually true. <laughs> um, but it, it eviscerates a lot of the conspiracy theories when you realize uh, people just want power for the sake of power because it feels good, because it's an addiction, because it's a distraction from, from their neurosis. And you don't really get it because you don't have that same addiction. Now you have other addictions. You may have an addiction to alcoholism, but, but the way the alcoholic, that the drink is an end in itself. And you can come up with some grand conspiracy about how, how they want to overthrow society and, and, or, or they want to denigrate society. And the best way to do that is have the strong, capable men who have a strong back and who are intelligent. You need them in the back of a bar. And you see that as some conspiracy to destroy society. It's it's simply that's the addiction. Those are the chemicals you go to. When you understand Marxism and power and how all this stuff works, then any like Illuminati, Jewish cabal conspiracy, you know, whatever it is, people are trying to give voice to this thing, Marxism. All these people take these ideas and they plan it out and they infiltrate all these organizations. No, there's, there's no plan. It's, this is an idea that has showed up that, uh, has resonated very well with humanity at this time. Marx was a genius at that. He was a genius at creating this idea. And, 
and I, you know, I, I don't want to psychoanalyze Marx too much, but I, I do think that's what he was doing. He was creating an idea that would resonate well. That's, that's what informed his metaphysics. That, that's what informed his epistemology is this is going to work well. This is going to get a lot of likes. He did the mid 19th century version of what TikTokers do. Like, why are you creating this content? This doesn't make sense. Like, you know, you look at some tweets and, you know, I'm an idiot because I respond to some of them like they're real. And I try to argue against them when I'm, you know, not in my best state. Let's just say, why would you say something like this? And then you take a step back and you realize, oh, that this is programmed. Your, your psyche is now programmed to get the most likes, to put a tweet together, not because it's what you think. Not as cause, not because it's what you feel, but this is going to do well. I think that's how people's consciousnesses work now. Some some of them, you know, uh, and I and I think that's how Marx has worked at, at the time. Because the guy who, who would have his kind of epistemology and metaphysics, that's how he would see the world. You know, it's it's very we would call it extroverted now. It's really not extroverted. It's just being more in tune to facts, to the facts of reality rather than ideas. Now, when you take that epistemology, you combine it with neuroticism and you get, you get this problem. So how do you immunize yourself against Marxism? What's that sound? Did you guys hear that? Well, let's uh, do the virus analogy. Let's carry this over. So if uh, Marxism is a virus, you need the T cells. Basically, what you do is you develop a sense of self in this reality, not some other reality, because that's fuel for Marxism. We saw that with Christianity and Marxism in the 19th century. One completely overtook the other. You don't argue with the virus. You don't, like, like what are you doing online arguing? Like, I, I get what you're doing, because I do it. But you don't argue with this stuff. You just develop a vaccine. You don't read more Marxism. You can if you want, but ultimately that's not going to matter. If you get hungry, you need to eat. And if you're spiritually hungry, you need to eat something. And Marxism is a low-hanging fruit that feels very, not good, but very powerful, very not bad. A great distraction from your psychological issues. And you're not a bad person, right? It's not about that. It's not being a bad person. Oh, Marxists are bad people. No, they're just more susceptible to this thing that's going around now. Um, you know, if, if the fascists won World War II, then the people on the other side of the epistemological spectrum would be more susceptible to fascism, and they would be the ones who are using this as a distraction. It, it's It's not... I think there is morality in this, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. This is just psychology. You're, you're not a bad person. If uh, you're, you're hungry and there's no food around and the only, well, the only food that you have is Oreos. Are you a bad person for eating those Oreos? Even though, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like kind of going to feel good for two seconds, but it's not really going to be what you want. You just need more and more Oreos. And if you eat enough Oreos, you look at something more nutritious, like a steak, I would say, ultimately the most nutritious thing ever. And you say, I don't even want that anymore. Ugh. 
Are you a bad person? No, you just got hungry. You just got hungry and there's nothing else around. That's why, that's the, the, so what is the golden Marxism? Well, there's a God. There is a God that is over and above a Christian God. Some value, you know, some, some value you can latch onto the collective, the proletariat, the creation of this, of the society with this. I mean, I mean, that's powerful, right? That's, that's powerful. Uh, not just this new man, but this new consciousness based on this new man, based on how society's run. There is a tribe. There is the feeling like like a sense of, you know, Christianity. That's why I think it's it's really an expression of who we are or any Abrahamic religion is it gives you this sense of depth, this sense of connection to this deep truth. Marxism gives you sunder not depth sunder gives you connection to a tribe this this thing that we that we all need and the connection that comes from it i don't know i guess connection could be part of a tribe so if you walk around you don't have a god based on this reality again your supernatural god it, i know it feels good and i'm not saying not to have it but you, you need to base that on something real you need to have uh, a superimposed value in your life, a value that matters above all else. In your life, not society. <laughs> you, you matter. You are the spiritual experience. It's not God. It's not going to church. It's not society. It is you and how you engage with, uh, with your value. So you've got to find your God, uh, in this reality, even if it's just a feeling, you know, I, I think a lot of people like, uh, if you talk about God, I'm not saying this has to be your God. I, I think your God needs to be something that you develop through the therapeutic process, right? Therapy is reading the book. Religion is the answers in the back. But I think when you read the book yourself, you can develop your own answers for yourself. That's what, that's what the point of therapy is to take you through that process so you can, uh, you know, develop your own gut and obviously not do away with Christianity. I think there's really helpful symbolism that helps us to, uh, organize this archetypal information, this, this information that we do press up against when we go through the therapy. And, and you know, if you ever really do like serious therapy and, you know, really go through all the cringe parts in your life, um, the dreams that you have, they're, they're haunting, they're haunting in a good way, but th that's the archetypes. You just come up and face the archetypes and you go, okay, this is who I am. How do I live out these ideas on my own? What is my iteration of these ideas? Of course, I'm, I'm just, you know, this is Jung's answer to, we need a God. It's not going to be the religious God. We need to make sense of the religious God. It wasn't wrong. It was just put in the wrong context. And that's, of course, what Jung tried to do. I think Jung's a great place to start if you're interested in that. Yeah, but the supernatural God, I'm sorry, that's just old software. It, it's not going to make it. It worked well before Marxism, but now we have this thing called Marxism that's here to stay. You can't just say we need to go back to God. That is like, we need to put more fuel on this fire. That's a, effectively what you're saying. 
Yeah, Marxism used, that's why it works so well. It used the externalized God to its advantage. It said this is all the other people have. They, they just have this story. They, they just have this story that's like opium that quells you. Now my God, without going too much into it, I could go way more into it, but then, you know, it's, it might be a little bit silly. It might feel that way, but, you know, I think that's what makes it... Uh, healthy is like something that you can really latch on to. Um, I, I call it just reality and my connection with it. That is my God and my Savior, you could say, my Jesus. The other thing that Marxism uh, shows us what's important is we, we need to find our tribe. I, I think the reason why Marx... Marxism spread, I was said in this in a bunch of different ways, is it's a hunter-gatherer mindset in an agricultural civilization. It's like that feeling you get when you're living in your group of 150, 200 people, however we evolved. I think that's kind of a oversimplification. But that feeling you get of living in the small town where everybody knows each other's names, there's no secrets, there's no hiding, and... There's just like this sense of community, like we all have each other's back. Marxism exploits exploits you when you don't have that. And again, it's not a moral thing. It's not like you can choose to. But if you're in this place without a tribe, without a community, you're going to be susceptible to Marxism. Just like if you're hungry and the only thing in the pantry is Oreos, you're just going to eat the Oreos eventually. You need breadth. You need a spiritual experience that is composed of breadth and depth. The depth is yourself. The breadth is the relationship you create with others based on what yourself is. And of course, this is connection. I'm kind of just repeating myself, but yeah, develop yourself in the context of tr the tribe through connection. Alienation. The thing that Mark said he was going to cure you of is just psychological loneliness. It is the phenomenon of having emotions and not being able to pinpoint them or express them, especially in the context of your relationships. If you're out in the world and you're interacting with people in an unemotional way, then you go home and cry every night. You go home and drink eight and a half beers. That's an expression of emotion and a guess, but that. I guess, but it's not done in that context of other people, so you can't really be conscious of it. That's that's how you inoculate yourself, and there's no other way. I, you know, read Marxism. You know, go go uh, try to defeat Marxists online and show up wherever Antifa shows up and and try to beat them up. Yeah, how's that worked out for the Proud Boys? Are they all in jail? I'm not I'm not saying they should be in jail. I'm, I'm very much in favor of the Proud Boys actually. I think they I mean the fact that, you know, they're a uh, anti uh <laughs> like there's some racist white supremacy organization. It you know, it's ridiculous, but I don't know, guys. I'm not saying you don't deserve it, of course, but I I mean that that's the reason why I'm doing this presentation. Is cuz we got to we we got to name the enemy for what it is. And as much fun as it is to go fight these, you know, probably, uh, you know, 
Antifa is a CIA support organization. We all know that you're fighting the CIA. You think you're going to fight the CIA and that's going to go well for you? I mean, come on. You got to see what's going on. And you got to see stuff like Antifa, Antifa going out in the street. That's internet brain, right? I, I read Antifa more than I say it. So I can't even say it. Uh, what are you doing? Right? You, 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 you sound, it feels like you're doing something but you're perpetuating the problem. I'm showing you how to do it. Find your God, find your tribe, connect with the tribe. Uh, I was going to do a conclusion here, mostly just to make fun of this. Victor Frankl said the only thing wrong with the Statue of Liberty, something to that extent, is that there's no... Yeah, there's a Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, but to compensate for that or to balance that out, this is not his exact quotation. We need a Statue of responsibility on the west coast we need to be responsible in order to support our freedom but in classic victor frankel fashion he's right but he just doesn't connect these ideas very well yes we need responsibility to uh, support our freedom but we also need freedom to to support our responsibility I, i mean these ideas are feed off each other but what supports freedom and what supports responsibility. Hmm. I think somebody wrote a book called man's guide to psychology. Uh, the, the explanation for consciousness and liberty or, or the integrated principles of consciousness and liberty. What is consciousness and liberty? If not responsibility and freedom, right? We need to understand our psychologies. We need to first learn what emotions are because you can't take responsibility unless you know what your emotions are. <laughs> Right, it's just not going to work. I, I'm smiling. It it seems like I'm joking or something, but it's just so silly that you would try to take responsibility for your life without first taking responsibility for your emotions, the cause of your actions, the cause of your values. Doesn't mean you know emotions are not irrational. They're they're totally rational. It's just how honest can you be? How aware of your emotions can you be? So, so any emotion that doesn't serve you, that's based on some trauma or based on a time in your life where there was this stress that you couldn't deal with. And now, because you are an adult, you have the intellectual, psychological wherewithal to deal with this, but you're still acting how you would act if you were eight and you didn't have the the resources to deal with this, right? Like, unless you do that, all the responsibility, by the way, this I'm also laughing because this is just the gayest the gayest statue. If this ends up being the statue of responsibility, oh my God. Now, I would become a Marxist at that point. I would advocate for the overthrow. Oh, it's, that's that's the stupidest thing. Anyway. I, the, 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 the statue of responsibility should just be a, a statue of Viktor Frankl. I mean, that would... Right? I mean, here's the guy who said this really awesome thing. Why wouldn't you just... Anyway. Uh, so that's enough for me. I could ramble more. Um, but yeah, join animus.com slash book. If you want to know like what emotions are and how they come from and, you know, just, just the foundations for building a sense of self, a capital S self, what Jung was talking about in, uh, you know, what, what he was talking about, what you need to do. I am like Jung. I am more accessible, which is because I'm more uh, 
fact-oriented than Jung was, but I'm also a lot dumber. Uh, so that helps me be more accessible too. I, I want to do what Jung did, how to create the sense of self as a God. Capital I individualism. How do you put that in the forefront of the Western psyche, of first year psyche, while being grounded 100% in reality? In order to do that, we need to understand what emotions are. We need to be able to talk through them. This is anger. This is anxiety. This is how your emotions work. This is how they're structured. And because they're structured in this way, you talk through them in a particular way. And when you do that, you arrive, you end up arriving at a point in therapy that is where, where you can boil your all your problems. I know your problems seem desperate, like, oh, you have this issue with this professor over here. You, you know, you have your issue with your mom and your dad over here. You have your issue with your girlfriend. You don't talk, you can't, you know, she's really annoying or she triggers all these um, insecurities in you. Or you can't get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, whatever it is you're, you're into. You have all these desperate ideas. But, you know, I think when you really go through a proper therapeutic approach based on how your emotions were, you can arrive at uh, a pressure point in your psyche. And you say, oh, those problems out there are all the result of a way I mismanage my emotions. And here's specifically how I do it. And here is, in fact, specifically how it has come up in my life today or this past week. Or here, um, here's a situation in the future coming up this week. And here's how my issue may come up in this situation. And here's how it's going to feel. You know, just focus on the pressure point of your psyche. Um, that's what that's what I can help you with here. Uh, join nos.com slash schedule if you want to do a consultation or slash course if you want to get that. I'm still offering that as a, as a d discount rate. The course takes you through um, my therapy. The exact process I go through in my therapy. You can go through this yourself. You can at least use it as some kind of journaling exercise. I think it's going to be, you know, like just in a completely different league than any other like journaling exercise you've ever used. Um, you can also go through it with a therapist. You can go through it with me. I, uh, I'll take you through it. If you think you need my help, you may not, but if you think you do, I'm available. Thank you guys. And I wish you all the uh, pain enjoy that comes from the realization that your alienation any any desire you have for power lust uh it all it doesn't come from your existence those are things in existence that come from your consciousness <laughs>